If you have your copies of God's Word, please turn in them to Matthew chapter 5, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Caleb, would you please go in my study and grab me a tissue? Thank you, brother. Matthew 5, we continue in our series of sermons in the Gospel of Matthew, will be this morning in verses 17 through 20. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Please follow along as I read. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yoda, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray once more. Almighty, gracious, and heavenly Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of Your Holy Word, would You grant that our hearts, freed from worldly affairs and concerns, may hear and understand Your Holy Word with all diligence and faith, so that we may rightly discern Your gracious will, that we would cherish it, that we would live by it with all earnestness, to Your praise and honor. Through our Lord Jesus Christ we pray, amen. As I uh, began my preparation to preach this text, the first words I read came from D.A. Carson's commentary on this passage. It begins with these words, quote, Matthew 5, 17 through 20 are among the most difficult verses in all the Bible. Happy Monday. <laughs> Difficult passage indeed. I remind you, though, of the context of these words, and I don't mean just in the immediate verses preceding, I mean where we are in Jesus' biography and the story of His extraordinary ministry. Uh, Jesus, even by this early point in His ministry, was already qua causing quite a stir. Uh, the rumor, perhaps, of His exceptional baptism uh, had begun to spread. Everywhere He went, He was calling men and women to repentance from their sins. He preached to them about the inauguration of a new kingdom. He was traveling about, apparently healing men and women of all their sicknesses and all their diseases, we read. And more than that, a small band of committed followers had pledged their allegiance to Him. Who is this man? Perhaps some wondered. Why has He come? What will He do? What does He mean by this new kingdom? He preaches. Uh, is He here to upend all of our traditions, to oppose our scribes and Pharisees, to set aside our Scriptures? What are the implications of His teaching for how we should understand the law and the prophets? Will He do away with our law? Where does He stand in relation 
to our religion. Numerous questions swirling in the minds of the Jews in those days, perhaps some among the crowds who are witnessing this sermon that Jesus is preaching. You'll remember the immediate audience is His disciples, those committed followers of His, but there are crowds on the outskirts listening in to Jesus' message. And perhaps some of these very questions are in their minds. But with that backdrop and that background and that context, against it, Jesus makes this most stunning and radical statement. He says, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yoda and not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You want to know about me, my ministry. You want to know about the nature of my teaching and my kingdom. You want to know my opinion on the law and the prophets and where I stand in relation to them. I have not come to abolish them. Rather, I have come in fulfillment of them. It is this and the subsequent statements made in verses 17 through 20 that I want us to consider today. Now, I recognize this is in many ways a very challenging passage. Practically every phrase and clause of this verse is in some way disputed and debated. Uh, It is in many ways a challenging passage, but it also, I think, is a wonderful passage. There's something huge and grand and bright and momentous and glorious that is being revealed in this passage. There are big ideas that we need to grasp if we're to understand what Jesus is getting across here. And so I don't want us to become distracted by obscure details and obscure questions. Rather, I want to stick with the main thrust of this passage and get like the big headline news that we're meant to get. It's possible that some questions, if you've been a Christian for some time, there may be some questions you have related to this passage. It's possible after this sermon some of those questions will remain. Uh, It's probable that the first disciples had questions about this statement. But there are big ideas that I think are laying here on the surface of the passage that we're meant to grasp, and with God's help, I want to help us grasp those things today as we consider this passage together. There are two questions I want us to ask these verses that will frame our time. The first question, which we'll spend the most time on, is this. What is Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament Scriptures according to this passage? What is Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament Scriptures according to this passage? And then the second question, what are the implications of this passage for Christian discipleship, like for our lives and how we walk and how we live as the Lord's people? First question, we'll spend the most time there, what is Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament Scriptures according to this passage? Let's read verse 17 and 18 again. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yoda, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So the question we're asking is, what is Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament Scriptures? And you may say, that's a funny question to ask, because I don't see any reference to the Old Testament Scriptures in this passage. Well, the reference comes in that little phrase, the law and the prophets, in verse 17. That's shorthand for the Old Testament Scriptures. If the Jews were referring to their Scriptures, much as we would refer to the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, well, they would refer to the law 
and the prophets, or if they're being very precise, they talk about the law, the prophets, and the writings. These were three distinct sections of Scripture. The law in that list would be the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you have the writings, which are the more narrative sections of Israel's history, and then you would have the prophets. So when Jesus says, I'm not come to abolish the law of the prophets, he's saying, I'm not come to abolish the Old Testament Scriptures. The law and the prophets were Israel's Scriptures. They were Jesus' Scriptures. Whatever is going on here, we see Jesus here upholding the authority and reliability of Israel's Scriptures. Now, we're asking the question, according to this passage, what is the relationship that Jesus has to these Scriptures, to the Old Testament, to the law and the prophets? Then his relationship to them, you can see this right on the face of the text, is defined in terms of two verbs, one that is in the negative, one in the positive. I have not come to abolish the Old Testament Scriptures, the Law and the Prophets. I have come to fulfill them. If we understand those two verbs, I think everything else will proceed in our understanding of this passage. The meaning is held in those two verbs. So let's labor to understand them both. This will define for us Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament Scriptures, to the law and the prophets. Let's consider those two verbs, first the one in the negative. Jesus says first, I did not come to abolish the law of the prophets. Uh, The English verb, excuse me, the Greek verb translated in English, abolish, is a very strong word. It means literally to destroy. In fact, some other translations will read, I have not come to destroy the law or the prophets. It could mean to tear down, to bring to nothing. It can be used to describe actual physical violence and destruction. It's a violent word, a strong word. I've not come to destroy, to tear down the law or the prophets. Uh, When Jesus was arrested and charged, one of the false accusations that was leveled against him was that he intended to what? Destroy the temple. That word translated destroy is the same word that's used here to describe what Jesus will not do with reference to the Old Testament Scriptures. They they, they said he's going to destroy the temple, he's going to tear it down violently, brick by brick. That's the word that was used. Jesus here is saying, I've not come to destroy or to abolish the law or the prophets. In other words, Jesus is saying, I did not come to destroy the Scriptures, to dismantle the law or the prophets, to tear them down brick by brick or page by page. I have not come to destroy or overthrow the law and the prophets, not come to dismantle them and to tear them down. Some perhaps had heard of this new and radical rabbi preaching a new and radical message about a gospel and about a kingdom. And perhaps they had wondered, does he preach in conflict with our scriptures? Will he destroy the law and the prophets as he teaches his new way and his new kingdom? And Jesus says, don't you think for a second that's what I've come to do. I have not come to destroy the scriptures. I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I will not tear them down. If that's the notion you have of what my ministry will involve, you're wrong. I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. In fact, Jesus will say in verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yoda, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Until heaven and earth pass away. I don't think we should understand that to be a precise duration of time. 
that one day heaven and earth are going to pass away, and then will the scriptures. I think it's kind of an idiom we would use like when hell freezes over. Uh, it's never going to happen, right? That's what we mean when we say that. At least that's what I think my mom, if I understood her correctly, meant when she would say that to me. Until <laughs> heaven and earth pass away, until the impossible happens, until that which can't be conceived happens. In other words, the scriptures will stand forever. Uh, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever, as Jesus will say elsewhere in John 10:35. Scripture cannot be broken. It can never come to an end. And indeed, the law and the prophets will continue unto the end. He says in verse 18, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yoda, not a dot. Some of you are just realizing that's how you pronounce that word yoda. It's not like Star Wars yoda. It's yoda like in Hebrew. A yoda is a particular marking that distinguishes certain sounds from one another. These are the slightest strokes of a pen. They're like accent marks on words, a yoda or a dot. And what Jesus is saying is every last detail down to the slightest stroke of the pen will continue as my word. Slightest stroke of the pen in Leviticus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, it will all continue as authoritative scripture, not a dot or a yoda is going to pass away. I'm not getting rid of anything. I'm not destroying or abolishing your scriptures. Now, if you are familiar with the New Testament, especially the book of Acts and the writings of the Apostle Paul, Already there's been a bit of tension that's rising up in you, isn't there? This presents a kind of challenge for us, right? Because here's this big programmatic statement from Jesus. I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets. And yet, as New Covenant Christians, we don't follow many of the Mosaic prescriptions that the Israelites were called to follow. We read in Mark 7, verse 19, for example, with a word Jesus made all foods clean. Couldn't eat pork for thousands of years with a word. In an instant, Jesus declared all foods clean. And John 4, with uh, the woman at the well, he announces the time where you're going to meet on this mountain or that mountain in a physical temple, it's coming to an end. Used to be that way, not going to be that way anymore. When he dies, the curtain in the temple is torn in two. The situation is completely changed. We see this in the book of Acts repeatedly. Peter is actually commanded to eat pork brought down in a basket to him. Uh, many of the Jewish prescriptions, the apostles conclude, are not going to be required in order to become a Christian. You don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. You don't have to follow the Jewish festivals to be a Christian. You don't have to follow the various dietary laws and the cleansing laws to become a Christian. And Paul will state this in many places in his writings. But then, of course, in the book of Hebrews, we have the most definitive statement that the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is ended. It is said to be obsolete. No longer you have the line of priests who year after year have to come into the temple. No, Jesus Christ now is our great high priest through the once for all sacrifice of himself to satisfy the wrath of God. No temple, no line of priests, no more sacrifices to be offered. That's why we didn't slaughter a lamb this morning. Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slaughtered for us. That covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is ended. It's over. It's obsolete. Paul will refer to it in 2 Corinthians 3 as the ministry of death. The ministry of condemnation, which is coming to an end. Christian, we have Christ now. Which means the old covenant is over. That covenant which is expressed in part in the law. The Pentateuch of the Old Testament. Friends, before we go back to our passage here, make no mistake... 
The Christ event, his coming into the world and his death on the cross, brought a radical end to the old covenant. We are members now of a new covenant with better promises and better blessings built on surer and deeper and better realities. You do not honor God, the Lord Jesus, or the gospel by going backwards. Okay, but you say, now back on our passage, Jesus is telling us here in this text, in the Sermon on the Mount, no less, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but all those other things you just said, Pastor Alex, sure sound like he's abolishing all kinds of stuff. Well, how do we resolve the tension? How can we harmonize this statement from Jesus with what we know to be true from so many subsequent revelations in Scripture? Well, there's a couple of things we should keep in mind. The first, first thing I should say is that in this passage in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, Jesus is not narrowly talking about the relationship between the covenants here, the old covenant and the new covenant. Jesus' words here should not be understood as an exhaustive statement on the relationship between the old covenant and the new covenant. Jesus is establishing his relationship to the scriptures at this particular moment in redemptive history. And he is here emphasizing that he has not come to oppose or undermine the scriptures. If we want to understand all the points of continuity and discontinuity between the old covenant and the new covenant, we're going to have to look to other scriptures to understand that, especially the book of Hebrews. But that said, this is the second thing I should say. We don't just have to go outside of this passage to resolve the tension. I think we can resolve the tension in part by the material we have internal to the passage itself because there's a second verb that Jesus uses to describe his relationship to the law and the prophets, to the Old Testament scriptures. And it's to that second verb I want us to look now. He says, I've not come to abolish it. In other words, I'm not going to tear down the law and the prophets. I've not come to destroy the scriptures. Rather, this is my relationship to them. He says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. The Greek word for fulfill is plerao. Plerao. Meaning to fill up, to bring to completion, to bring to its intended end or goal, to fulfill. By the way, this is the word uh, they would have used to describe when a pregnant woman comes to full term. The time is fulfilled. This thing that was expected, this thing that was coming, now it's here. That's how the word could be used in kind of everyday life in the Jewish arena, in the Greek arena. It means to bring something to completion, to bring it to fruition, to bring it to its desired end. The word plerao is used 17 times in Matthew's gospel. In almost every single instance, the word is unambiguously used with reference to prophetic fulfillment. In other words, it was said something was going to happen in the Old Testament somewhere. And it has been fulfilled, it has happened in Jesus. You might remember in Matthew 2, we had uh, repeated several times, uh, this occurred to fulfill the statement of the prophet that he would be born in Bethlehem, or something like that. This is to fulfill the words of Jeremiah, etc. It looks primarily to that which was said before or anticipated before, finding fulfillment now in the present. That which was anticipated, that which was looked for, that which was sought after, it has come to completion. 
That's how plerao is used. So when we read in Matthew 5, 17, I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them, we should not think Jesus is narrowly saying, I have come to keep the law. I've come to obey the law. He will keep the law for us. He will obey the law for us, but that's not what the word plerao means. It means he will somehow fulfill and embody and represent everything the law and the prophets looked forward to. Jesus is saying, I am the intended end and goal of the law and the prophets. I bring them to completion. I am everything that they were anticipating and expecting. I am what they were pointing to. Now just pause for a second and think of how grand and in-your-face a statement this is. Talking to his disciples, surrounded by crowds of Jews, and he says, no, 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 I've not come to abolish your scriptures. I'm the fulfillment of your scriptures. Everything you have read in the law and the prophets, I'm what they were pointing to. There could hardly be a more dramatic statement of authority that Jesus could make than that. You, you think that I'm some iconoclast, some radical renegade who's going to tear down your scriptures? If you're reading your scriptures right, you would recognize me. I'm the fulfillment of everything they anticipated. Now, it might be easy for us to think that way with reference to the prophets, for example. If I say Jesus came to fulfill the prophets, what would you think I mean by that? Well, very simple. Certain prophecies were made. Jesus fulfills them. So Micah tells us in Micah 5.2 that the Christ will be born in Bethlehem. And looky here. The Christ is born in Bethlehem. Isaiah tells us the child will be born. And he is born. Right? We have a category for that. The fulfillment of prophecy. But how does that work with the law? He said, I, I, I get, yes, prophecy is looking forward. It's talking about events to come in the future. Jesus comes in fulfillment of those events. That makes sense. But does it really make sense to say Jesus fulfilled the law in that sense? That he was what the law anticipated or pointed forward to? We don't normally think of it that way. How is it that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the law? The expectations of the law? Everything that the law was pointing forward to. And we're helped here, I think, by a little statement that's made in Matthew 11. Turn over to Matthew 11 in your Bibles, if you will. Totally different context. And yet we're helped, I think, in understanding Matthew 5.17 by what's said here in Matthew 11. Look at verse 12, if you would. Matthew 11, verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Not just the prophets. The law, in some sense, prophesied, foretold something, expected something, anticipated something, began something that finds its completion and fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, where and how did the law prophesy concerning Christ? Well, well remind you, remember, the law is not merely the legal material in the Old Testament. The law to the Jews is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. That includes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The law prophesied concerning Christ. How? Maybe Genesis 
The seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head. That's in the law. The promise made to Abraham that there would come from his line a son who will bring blessing to the nations. That's in Genesis 12 and restated in other places in the law. How about the statement of God through Moses to Israel that he will send them a prophet like Moses who they will listen to in Deuteronomy 18. Jesus comes in fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, what the law anticipated. But more than that, what about all the types and shadows in the law? The Israelites never sacrificed the blood of bulls and goats because they thought that could save them. It was predictive. It was a type and shadow. It was looking ahead to something that would come. They did that because one day Jesus, the Son of God, would come and he would shed his blood. All those lambs and bulls and goats were just foreshadowing what would happen, what was anticipated even in the legal code of the Israelite people is fulfilled, brought to completion, brought to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. These things in the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, pointed ahead to the Christ who would fulfill them. He brings them now to completion brings them to their intended end and climax. You see, Jesus in this statement is upholding the authority and veracity and relevance of the Old Testament scriptures, including the law, precisely in that he is fulfilling all of its hopes and expectations. He upholds the authority of the law and the prophets and their relevance in coming and in fulfilling everything they anticipated or expected. Jesus' ministry then, friends, far from being in radical discontinuity with the Old Testament scriptures, is in the most dramatic way possible the climactic fulfillment of the scriptures. He is saying to those Jews looking on, I'm not abolishing the scriptures, I'm fulfilling them. He's saying, I'm not abolishing the scriptures, I am that which they pointed to. What you see happening before you is in keeping with your scriptures, the very fulfillment of them. What you see happening now is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Is the Old Testament authoritative? Is it in force? You better believe it is. And I am its climax. I am the point to which it was all driving. I am, in my ministry, in my work, its fulfillment. And all the Old Testament scriptures, all the law and the prophets must be read now through me and my ministry and my work. And listen, they will only have their ongoing authority and relevance as they are read through Jesus. In other words, those who honor the scriptures are those who see them through Christ. Do you uphold the Old Testament? You must read them through Jesus. He's the fulfillment. He's everything they were pointing to. He's what they were aiming at. He's bringing it all to fruition. I'm not going to abolish them. I'm come to be the very thing they anticipated and expected. I'm bringing it all to completion and to fruition. Oh, Jesus will honor the Scriptures. Not only will He honor them, He will bring them to fulfillment to their intended goal, which is Himself. So what's the bottom line. How should we understand Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament scriptures? I'm helped by this simple statement from one of the commentators. He says, Jesus does not conceive of his life and ministry in terms of opposition to the Old Testament, 
but in terms of bringing it to fruition. Thus, the law and the prophets, far from being abolished, find their valid continuity in terms of their outworking in Jesus. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. Now let's consider a second question. Second question. We're seeing what Jesus' relationship is to the Old Testament scriptures according to this passage. We want to ask, what then are the implications of this passage for Christian discipleship? Jesus comes as the climactic fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Okay, what does that mean for Christian discipleship and how we should then live as the Lord's people? The implications are many from this statement. I want to focus just on three things. Three implications for us this morning in the time that remains. Number one, we, disciples of Christ, we must read the Old Testament always with an eye to the person of Jesus. We must always read the Old Testament with an eye to the person of Jesus. My friend, you do not honor God or Christ or the gospel if you're reading your Old Testament like an Old Covenant Jew. That does not honor the Lord. You should not be thinking when in your devotions you arrive at 1 Samuel, all right, I've got to get in the headspace of the Old Covenant Jew here. That's how I need to read this. Wrong. Jesus is providing here in our passage a radical new hermeneutic, a principle for interpretation. How are you going to make sense of your Old Testament? Read it through me. It's all about me, Christ from beginning to end. I am the fulfillment of what the law and the prophets pointed ahead to. I'm everything the law and the prophets, your scriptures anticipated. And if you don't see me in your Old Testament, you're missing the point. That doesn't mean in every single text the line's going to be as clear, but it does mean the body of the Old Testament scriptures as a whole is meant to direct us to Jesus. It's a great tragedy of the Jews' rejection of Jesus. You feel the sting of that indictment in John 1. He came to his own and his own received him not. I mean, the, the very thing all of the Old Testament was pointing toward, when it came, they missed it. Jesus says in John 5 to the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. That you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Brother, sister, as a new covenant Christian, you must always read the scriptures through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the climactic fulfillment of everything the Old Testament anticipated. And far from diminishing the importance of the Old Testament, far from abolishing and destroying and laying aside the Old Testament, his coming only enhances its relevance. The Old Testament is meant ultimately to bring us to Jesus. And I'll just ask you as a thought experiment. You imagine the scribes and the Pharisees who rejected Jesus' teaching here. Probably would have viewed it as amounting to something approximating blasphemy. You saying, you are the fulfillment of our scriptures? Who do you think you are saying that? And the scribes from that point on continue to do their scribal thing combing through the 613 laws of the Old Testament, drawing out all these different implications for how the Jews were to live, failing to see that their Messiah had come. Who honors the authority of the Scriptures better? 
the scribes and the Pharisees who refused to recognize that which the scriptures pointed to. Or Jesus' disciples who recognize in Jesus the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. You don't honor the scriptures by failing to see them through Christ. But in seeing them through Christ, we are doing credit and honor to the scriptures' authority and seeing that which they were pointing to. So this is the first implication. Read your Old Testament scriptures, brothers and sisters, as they're meant to be read, as finding their climactic fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Second implication. As Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures, as Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures, we must listen to him and to his commands. We must listen to him and his commands. This is where Jesus goes in the rest of our passage. Verse 17, I'll, I'll read again for us just for context. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yoda, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then he pivots in verse 19. Therefore, because this is true, now he wants to talk about what life in the kingdom will be like. I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. Therefore, because I do not set the Old Testament aside, but am rather its goal and fulfillment, you listen now to me. You see what he's done. He's making a claim to authority. He says, therefore, since I am the fulfillment of the scriptures, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments... And that's not a reference now backwards to like Old Covenant law. That's a reference forward to the commands he's about to give them. I come as your authority. I come as the one to whom the scriptures are pointing. Therefore, whoever relaxes these commandments that I'm about to give to you, the words that I have for you, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is citing his relationship to the Old Testament as grounds for his own authority. He's saying, because I come as the climactic fulfillment of the law and the prophets, listen now to me. And these commands that I give to you, the idea is, if this is who Jesus is, what priority then should we give to his words? What priority should we give then to his commands? Remember the prophecy of Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. There the Lord says through Moses, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. In other words, one day there's going to come a prophet greater than Moses who will be the true and greater Moses, the true and better lawgiver, and you will listen to him. In these last days, the writer of the Hebrews tells us God has spoken by his son. Think of the moment, the drama, this humble rabbi standing before his band of disciples, crowds, and he says, everything in the law and the prophets was pointing to me, and you therefore listen to me. 
I have commands to give you. I have words to say to you. And I have authority that none of your scribes and Pharisees have. And what we learn here, this is important for us in sort of cheap grace, uh, 21st century, casual, careless, carefree American evangelicalism. We learn here that Jesus' ministry is not an anti-legal ministry. What do I mean by that? Jesus' ministry is not this sort of soft kind of Messiah who's voiding all commands and teaching the principle of cheap grace and, you know, you live how you want to live. That's not the way he speaks to his disciples. No, he has commands to give them. He has laws to give them. And he has credentials to give such commandments that are unsurpassed. He says, I am the fulfillment, the embodiment, the end and goal of everything your law pointed to. And as the fulfillment of the law, I now have commandments to give to you. Now, this is important. Don't miss this. Some of these commandments that he gives will be restatements of ancient law. Some of these commandments will intensify old commandments. In other places, he will call his followers back to the heart of the law. In some places, he'll give completely new commandments altogether. They're all to be obeyed. They're all to be followed. In all these cases, he is establishing himself as the ultimate lawgiver, the true and better Moses. The one who comes as God's anointed to speak God's commands to us. And from here on out, all biblical laws, all ethics, all commandments in Scripture and in the Christian faith must go through Jesus to have their meaning. You again imagine what this would have meant to those disciples. They had probably grown up in Hebrew schools, had learned the various laws. And Jesus says, I'm everything the law and the prophets are pointing to. Therefore, listen to me. I'm going to tell you how to live. I'm not in conflict with your scriptures. I'm the embodiment of them the fulfillment of them. Therefore, you listen to me. What authority? It's the greatest possible appeal to authority that Jesus could have made. I wrote a book recently on Charles Spurgeon. That book, the background of that book is uh, my doctoral dissertation. And if you write a dissertation, you're supposed to establish yourself as a credible expert on whatever the subject of your dissertation is. The book I wrote is not my dissertation. It is based on the fruits of my research from my dissertation. And yet in that book, remember, the subject matter of which I'm supposed to be an expert, the 700 footnotes in the book. There's a page with acknowledgments of all the experts and people who helped me along the way who I give credit to. And I'm an expert. And yet if you read my book, as I'm sure you all have eagerly done, <laughs> you'll find I'm constantly footnoting all these claims I make. Now, well, don't take my word for it. But go find this other scholar who said this somewhere else and, and, you know, this authority says this and you can check here or there and all that kind of stuff. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't do that. He, he doesn't footnote other rabbis. He doesn't defer to Moses and Isaiah. He doesn't say, well, you know, what? We're, that's a good question. Uh, I'll have to go look back at my notes. Uh, get back to you on that one. We're going to have a conference. We're going to call it ETS, the Evangelical Theological Society, and we and the rabbis all get together and we'll confer, and then we'll come back to you for an answer. No, Jesus doesn't even do what the Old Testament authors did. You know what they did? When they prophesied, they said, thus saith the Lord. 
They cited God. Jesus doesn't even do that. What does Jesus say when he speaks his commands? I say unto you. (sighs) Pure and utter authority. He's not citing anybody. He's not conferring with the scribes and the Pharisees. He's not huddling up as the Pharisees often did in response to Jesus to know how to answer his questions. No, I say unto you, if a man looks at another woman with lust in his heart, he has committed adultery. I say unto you, if you are angry in your heart with your brother, you have committed murder and are in danger of the hell of fire. He's speaking as the Lord of all the true and better and final lawgiver, the great prophet of God who will reveal to us the will of the Lord. No wonder the Sermon on the Mount ends, Matthew 7, 26, 27, excuse me, and we read this, verse 28, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, you think? For he was teaching them as one who had authority. And I love this little elbow jab at the scribes. And not as their scribes. He taught as one who had authority. Not like Jewish scholars. Not like the scribes. Not like the Pharisees, those great teachers of the law. Who had to hold a conference to decide what this obscure passage in Leviticus means. No, he spoke as God the very fulfillment and embodiment of the law and the prophets themselves. All right, third and final implication. We must read the scriptures through the lens of the person and work of Jesus. We must listen to him as the authoritative lawgiver, thirdly and finally. As Jesus' disciples... We must see that we walk in true inner righteousness and not false outward righteousness. This brings us to verse 20. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's possible some were listening to Jesus, what he says in verses 17 through 19, and perhaps they thought to themselves, Wow. He's really raising the bar here. He really cares about righteousness and commandments. I wonder, does he expect us to be as righteous as the scribes and the Pharisees? And Jesus says, oh no, you must go higher than that. Jesus now makes plain, I'm not talking about the superficial, faco righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. I'm talking about true inner righteousness that comes out of the heart of one regenerated by the Spirit of God. One who is a disciple in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about what your scribes and Pharisees are doing. If there were scribes and Pharisees among the crowds and they were cheerleading Jesus in verses 17 through 19, they're not doing that anymore. He's not going to be their boy. He's not going to give cover and countenance for their sham righteousness, their outward, fake pretense of righteousness. Who were the scribes and the Pharisees? The scribes were those who studied the law in intimate detail. 
And not only did they enumerate all the various laws of the Old Testament, they would produce other laws, a kind of fence around the law, numerous implications of law to tell us how we're to live in every detail of our lives. And the Pharisees were those who fastidiously subscribed to those laws and lived them out in every detail. And they loved to parade this kind of charade of outward righteousness. And yet, we'll see this in numbers of places. We have a prelude to it here. In Matthew 23, Jesus is going to call the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. That's quite a statement. Some of you know I like to poke around in graveyards. Often the graves are quite beautiful and immaculate if they've been well maintained. But what's in the grave? If you could see, six feet under, it's worms eating away a corpse. That's what's in there. That's the word picture Jesus uses to describe the Pharisees' righteousness. It's all a joke. It's all a sham. It may look pretty on the outside, but inside there are dead man's bones. And Jesus says, I'm not here to call you to that kind of righteousness. That's not the standard. That's not how people will live in my kingdom. I'm after a true inner righteousness. A righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And what is that righteousness? Now track with me here. We can get this wrong, okay? When Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, don't immediately do the whole imputation thing. Like, well, they can't have that kind of righteousness, and so I need Jesus' righteousness imputed to me. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Bless God, we have Jesus' imputed righteousness, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He is trying to contrast the fake righteousness of the Pharisees, the mere outward sort of conformity of the Pharisees with a true kind of inner beauty and righteousness that his disciples will live out. He's trying to help his disciples reconceptualize of what real righteousness is, like experientially, practically. Don't be like the Pharisees who say, well, I've never, I've never slept with a woman, not my wife, and therefore I'm clear from the law. Jesus says, what's in your heart, man? What's going on on the inside? That's not righteousness. What is within you? And then proceeds out. That's the definition of righteousness. There is an inner conformity to the will of God that I'm after. And therefore, what Jesus is doing is contrasting the righteousness that will prevail among God's people in his kingdom and the righteousness that seemed to prevail in the Judaism of Jesus' day. A mere outward pretending at righteousness. No, what I want is your heart. A heart that pleases me. A heart that lives in conformity to my will. And so we should learn from this passage is that Jesus wants us to walk not in fake righteousness, but in true righteousness. Christ is not impressed with outward religious formalism. Looking out at all your faces now, you all look very clean and very well made up in your Sunday best. I put on my coat today. I dressed up for church. None of that impresses the Lord. What's in your heart? Are you following Jesus at the core of who you are? My disciples are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Matthew 5, 6. And their righteousness is to be more and better and different. I'm not mere outward conformity. Now I want you to follow me from your heart. Brother, sister, are you following Jesus from the heart? And this leads to my closing statement, which I must say. 
what should you do if you realize that all of your pretended righteousness is just a game? It's all fake. I look inward and I say, I'm not following Jesus. I'm not living for his glory. I can fake out all these people. I could fake out the folks at work. I could fake out my spouse. I could fake out my family and my closest friends, but I'm not following Christ. And I know nothing of the righteousness that he's calling his disciples to in this passage. I'm like those Pharisees. You're hearing me preach. You hear the indictment of verse 20, and you fall under that indictment. He said, I'm just like those scribes and Pharisees. I'm a whitewashed tomb. What do I do? I want to be a possessor of true righteousness. Well, I would not say to you precisely what Jesus says in this verse. I wouldn't say, we'll just start doing righteous things. Start being better. Then you'll be right with God. No, I would encourage you to do what the Apostle Paul did, which we heard about last week from Rex's sermon. At some point in Paul's experience, stated in Philippians 3, he realized, I come under this indictment. What does he say about himself? I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin concerning the law, a Pharisee. He thought he was righteous. Thought he was righteous. And at some point, became convinced it's all smoke and mirrors, it's all a game. I don't have the righteousness I need to satisfy the just judgment of God. What did he need? What did we see last time? He said, I don't need a righteousness that is my own that comes from the law, but that which comes by faith in Jesus Christ. He wants to be found in Christ. What you need, my friend, is to be saved from your sins and united to the Lord Jesus and to be clothed in his righteousness. And then you will be saved. That's what Paul needed. I can't work my way into the kingdom. I need an alien righteousness to cover me if I'm ever going to be right with God. And then what was Paul's experience? Well, he began to walk in a kind of righteousness he had no notion of when a Pharisee. He learned from Christ in Christ's school what he never learned in the schools of Gamaliel. No, I'm not to walk just in outward conformity to Jewish law. I'm to love God from the heart. And Paul started walking in a positive righteousness. As one who had been united to Christ and had been justified by the Lord himself. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, what do you need? You need to go to Christ and look to him for all your merit, all your righteousness, all your standing with God. And if you are a Christian, what do you need to do? Well, you need to go to Christ to do the very same thing. And you need to go to him now as your Lord and your Savior. And you need to ask him, Lord, help me now to walk in true righteousness. I don't want to live like a Pharisee. I want to live like a citizen of the kingdom. I want to be like the ones Jesus is talking about here. I want to follow my Lord walk in obedience to his commands and love you from the heart. Jesus, my Lord and Savior in whom is all my righteousness, would you show me now how to live according to this righteousness you call us to? Let's pray together.
Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful that in our day, in our generation, we live in the days of fulfillment. We live in the days of the kingdom. We live now in the light of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. We thank you for how our Savior and Lord has honored the scriptures and how he's taught us how to understand them. We thank you, Father, that he came as that great lawgiver, the true and better Moses, to show us a true and better way, a way that's been opened up by his blood. We thank you that he has come as our teacher, as our rabbi, our master, to show us how to walk in the paths of righteousness. We would walk in those paths, Lord. We pray that you would show us and teach us as those who have been united to Christ and have been born again by the Spirit of God, those who have been justified in your sight, show us now how to live. Lord, we don't want to be fakers. We don't want to be false. We want to be in our hearts, in private, in our closet, that which we appear to be in public. We want to love you and serve you in true righteousness. Lord, we're hungry for it. We thirst for it. Help us to live according to your commands, to love your law, to love your words, to find in them what the Apostle Peter found in them. Your words are life. Where else shall we go? You alone have the words of life. Father, there is so much that distracts us and so many lies that we're told day by day. Oh, Lord, teach us and show us the way in which we're to walk. Deliver us from every false way. Deliver us from sin and temptation and Satan. Give us, Lord, your commands, your sweet commands. Help us to love them. And in a heart motivated by grace and love and worship, to live them out in ways pleasing to you, never as the grounds of our merit, but as an expression of our love to you. And finally, Lord, we pray for anyone here, any of your children, who are tempted to make conformity to your law the grounds upon which they approach you. Lord, just dismantle that idea in their minds right now. Blow that idea out of the water. Help them to see there's no law-keeping they could do to be right with you. It's only through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ in our place. And may that work sweetly in them to help them to love the gospel and to embrace the forgiveness and grace you've given them and also to motivate them to walk in true holiness and righteousness as your disciples. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.